All right. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. All right. Enjoying this lovely fall weather and hopefully everyone's staying warm. Good. A little bit. Okay. Well, I would love it if you would go to God in prayer with me. Heavenly Father, we are so excited to come to you and to dive into your word and to find more and more and more about you uh, in, the, in your word, Lord. We're so grateful that you've given us the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're thankful that your son Jesus is found throughout all of it. And we just ask that as we, as we go through the scriptures today, that you would help open our hearts to find Jesus everywhere we look, that we would hope, open our hearts to find out what it is that you want us to do in our lives. And we, we ask that you would give us the courage to go out into the world and to make disciples of all nations, that we would take what we learn here from your word and that we would spread it all throughout Alliance, throughout Nebraska, and throughout this nation that we live in. I ask that you would be with me, that you would help to make my speech clear and concise, uh, pour into me the gift of preaching so that those listening would be able to hear it and understand it and apply it to their lives. And I thank you for your son, Jesus, and the sacrifice that he made. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. And the church said, all right. So today is going to be the last day of the fingerprint series, at least for Genesis. Um, so next week, give you an idea of our schedule. I have, I have drill uh, with the Army next week, and then I'll be back for a week, and then I go back the week after that, because um, the way the, the weeks line up, I've got one week in the middle between two battle assemblies. So um, for the next three weeks, you're going to hear from, from Dave's going to be back, Dave Parrish from Summit's going to come preach, and then I'll be back, and we've got something special planned for you in two weeks. And then we'll have another speaker from Summit preach. And then after that, we're getting into December and we're going to start looking at the book of Exodus. Um, and then obviously in there, we're going to take a day. We're going to celebrate Christmas. Um, but from so basically from after today until Easter, we're going to be diving into the book of Exodus. And my goal after we finish up today is to be able to take this fingerprints idea, which I feel like we've had a lot of practice. We've kind of hopefully got it down. Um, and I want us to take that and use it as one tool that we can put in our back pocket that we can read scripture with. Um, and so from now until Jesus comes back, I want us to have this as a tool we have to be able to read scripture. But how we move on after the first of the year is going to depend on um, a couple of things. So first off, I want to y'all a chance to be a part of the message, to be a part of the sermon. Um, I've got a passage of scripture here that I really wanted to preach on, but it's, it's just short enough that I couldn't really make a full sermon out of it. So instead of skipping it, um, I thought I would give y'all a chance to uh, tell me what you see and what you hear in this passage of scripture. Um, so what I want to read to y'all, I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 22. This is the story of Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac. Um, and so I'm going to read the passage of scripture. I want you to pay close attention to the details. And then I want y'all to tell me what fingerprints you see. Right? And obviously, 
the first one, I'm going to give you the, the easy one, right? We have this lamb who is sacrificed, this ram who is sacrificed in place of Isaac, which reminds us a whole lot of Jesus, right? So I'm going to get that to give me. I'm going to give you that one. But I want you to pay attention to the details, no matter how small they may seem, no matter how inconsequential they may seem. Um, pay attention and, and see what you notice here. So I'm in Genesis 22, verse 1. So sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire in the night. As the two of them went together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they had reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by his horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. All right, so now it's y'all's turn. What did you see there that reminded you of Jesus? Isaac carried the wood. Yeah, he carried the wood on his back, just like Jesus carried his own cross to his crucifixion, didn't he? That's good, I like that. He was an only son. Yeah, we said that a couple of times in there, right? Your only son, your one and only son, and we read about Jesus being God's one and only son. Yeah, fingerprints there. What else? I've got a couple more written down. Ooh, that's a really good one. I didn't even have that one written down. Yeah, the father was being, the father of uh, Isaac was willing to give his only son. Yeah. I was looking at the, the faith of Abraham um, in verse 4. Yeah. We. Yeah, the we aspect. We will worship. Um, so, a couple other ones I had written down. Um, what did Abraham ride up the mountain on? Did you catch that? He rode in on a donkey. Does that remind us of Christ riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? Um, and then um, 
on the third day, we hear about on the third day was when he went up on the mountain, which reminds us of Jesus being raised on the third day. And then the last one I had on here, this one might not have been as obvious, but Mount Moriah is the spot where the temple was built. That's the place where the temple was built. That's the Temple Mount. Yeah. I was thinking the lamb was sacrificed in place of Isaac. Yeah. Jesus was sacrificed in place of the Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Jesus is... In, in all, for all intents and purposes, Jesus is the ram who was sacrificed in our place so that we didn't have to be the ones on the cross. Yeah, that's awesome. Nothing makes me happier than hearing you guys say all that. That, that, that makes me really happy. Um, okay, so now what I want to do after that brief little intermission is I want to get into the actual scripture um, that I have prepared today. Uh, the last one we're going to read in Genesis. I'm going to be in Genesis 37. And I want to read about... Joseph. So we go to Genesis 37, starting in verse 1 with me. Oh, my sticker fell. There it is. Genesis 37, 1, we read, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, and, the sons, uh, and his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. So I want us to start off right off the bat by recognizing that Joseph is held out as being a shepherd. Right? And it reminds us of Jesus, the good shepherd. And what does Joseph do? The first thing he does in this account is he's giving a bad report about his brothers. Wasn't that just what Jesus did in his earthly ministry? He came in as the good shepherd and he began giving a bad report of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of these people. And he said, you guys are not following God's will. Um, those were the descendants of Israel. Those were the sons of Israel, which kind of ties in here. Um, they weren't living up to the expectation of the father. So Jesus spends a lot of his time preaching against them and giving a bad report. And in, and in Genesis 37, I want you to take really close attention to what uh, Jacob does, what Israel does. In verse 3, we read, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had, give, had been born to him in his old age, and he made him an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So what's the significance of Joseph's, right? We, we all know the, the story, Joseph's colorful, many-colored robe, his ornate robe. What's the significance of that? I think it's important to notice that, oh, they got some construction outside. That'll be fun. Yeah. Sorry about the interruptions there. It's important to notice that Joseph is given the robe and it comes along with an expression of his father's love, right? I want you to compare that to Mark chapter 1, verse 9. It says, At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, just 
as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. See, it was with Jesus' baptism, it was his, his initiation to his earthly ministry, that the Father publicly expressed his love for him. And in Galatians 3, we read a little bit more about baptism. Uh, Paul says, So in Christ you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So I want to put a handful of verses up on the screen. I'm not going to read them right now, but if you see those, you get a chance to write those down um, and, and, and look those up a little bit later. Um, but we often see in the New Testament this idea that baptism and being clothed with Christ are uh, often heard about together, right? This idea that when we are baptized into Christ, we are given new clothes. We are putting on Jesus as our new clothes. That's the beginning of our walk with God. It's part of becoming a new creation. Obviously, Jesus, when he was baptized, he didn't need to become a new creation, right? He didn't need to put on new clothes. His clothes were already spotless. But he set an example for us of what we should be doing, how we should be putting on our new clothes and having this new creation. And so, back in Genesis, we read that because of Joseph's new clothes, because of his new identity, because of the fact that he was loved by his father, what did his brothers do? They had animosity toward him. They hated him. And then we read in verse 5, back in Genesis. It says, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. So Joseph is, is given new clothes. He's given an expression of love by his father. And then he starts displaying these signs to his brothers in the form of dreams. And every dream that he has gives some sort of indication that he is going to be bowed down and worshipped. And his brothers were mad. They didn't like that. They didn't like the fact that he had the audacity to come up to them and say, I had this vision, I had this dream that you all are going to bow down to me. Likewise with Christ. Every sign that he displayed, every miracle that he performed was for the purpose of revealing who he was as king. And that's important. Sometimes when we read about Jesus, we might get this idea that he came so that he could heal people or he came so that he could perform miracles. That wasn't the point of Jesus' ministry. Think about the story. Think about the story of the man who was lowered down to the roof to be healed, the paralytic man. What was the first thing that Jesus said to him? Your sins are are forgiven. And I always 
I always imagine in, in that account, I always imagine this paralytic man laying there going, that's great and all, Jesus, but are you going to do anything about my legs or are we just going to have a theological conversation? And, and, but Jesus didn't heal his legs right away, didn't he? Because that was not his purpose. Jesus didn't come to perform magic tricks. And when he is in our life, his purpose for us is not to grant our wishes. Right? God's not a genie in a lamp that we rub and make wishes. That's not how we should have an attitude toward God. Jesus' signs and wonders and the miracles that he performed were strictly for the purpose of revealing to the world that he is, in fact, the King, the Son of God, the Lord of all creations. And so the Pharisees said to him, Who is this man who says he forgives sins? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? They had the same kind of attitude that Joseph's brothers had to Joseph. The Pharisees said, Do you think that we were somehow worship you? Do you think that we're going to bow down to you? Who do you think you are? But then in in the next account here in, in, in Genesis, this next dream that Joseph gives, things get a little bit more interesting. I want to read this for you. I want, I want to hear what you all think about this. This is starting in verse 9. It says, Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another, or, yeah, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come down and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So I hope by this point you're realizing that with the fingerprints method, we're reading that Joseph is, is representing Christ. Right? We're seeing this, these fingerprints of Jesus on Joseph. And I want to take a moment here and kind of step back and think about how we apply these fingerprints in Scripture and making sure we do it right. Because we can't just put fingerprints on things where they're not there, or we can't just make up fingerprints if it doesn't add up, if it doesn't make sense. So think about uh, investigators on a crime scene, right? Sometimes when they're doing their DNA swabs or they're finding fingerprints, they might only get a partial of the fingerprint and they don't have a complete match. Or they might have multiple people that come up in the crime scene and they've got to make sure they track down the right one. And they can't just chase after the first one they find because they might end up taking the wrong guy. They might have to go up after the wrong guy. So in this section, we read that Joseph had a dream about the moon and the sun and the 11 stars bowing down to him. And his father says, don't you mean to say, do you mean to say that we as your parents, we're going to bow down to you too? And so if you're thinking in the mindset of fingerprints, you might be tempted to think to yourself, well, if Joseph is a fingerprint of Jesus, then Joseph's father would be a fingerprint of who? All right, God the Father. So let's chase down that idea. Let's follow up on that clue and see if it actually works. Let's test it. Would it make sense 
to say that God the Father bows down and worships Jesus? No, of course not. It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. Because God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are all co-equal in majesty. They don't bow down to one another. So we have to be careful. We can't just apply these fingerprints wherever we feel like it. We have to add it up, and we have to actually follow up with what's written in Scripture to see what makes sense. So, in Joseph's original dream, he said he saw the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bowing down to him. I want to chase another clue here. I want to, I want to try something else. I want to read from Revelation chapter 12. Read verses 1 through 5. This is a vision that John is having. He says, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So in Revelation, we have this vision of a woman giving birth to a, a son who would be the ruler of all the world, the savior of the world. And she's wearing the sun and the moon. Right? Did you catch that? And so I think what we're seeing here is not uh, fingerprints of God the Father. We're seeing fingerprints of the people who worshipped Jesus. For example, Mary, his mother, bowed down and worshipped him. Which is very uncommon for that time. You would never have a parent worshipping a child. That's just not the way things would work in those days. So that was a big deal that even Mary, even his own mother, bowed down and worshipped him as Christ. And we see in Revelation that, that the woman who's representing Mary was, was wearing 12 stars on her head. And anytime you see the number 12 in the Bible, your mind should instantly go to one of two places. Number one, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Which we're reading about in Genesis. We're reading about the brothers who eventually became the 12 tribes. And the second place you should think when you hear the number 12 is Jesus' 12 disciples, which in and of itself is a fingerprint. But wait a minute. How many stars were in Joseph's dream back in Genesis? Eleven, right. Because Joseph plus eleven brothers makes twelve brothers, so that kind of makes sense in the context of Genesis. But I want you to keep that, that whole idea in mind as we keep on reading here, uh, starting in verse 12. He says, Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, 
a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dotham. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dotham. But when they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into the one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Sorry. I lost my spot there. Sorry. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him in the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. So in the same way that Jesus was stripped of his clothes on the cross and placed in the tomb, we see Joseph was stripped of his robe and placed in the cistern. We see this parallel. We see that Joseph is a shadow of the things to come. And then in verse 25, we read, As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. Did that 20 shekels of silver make any light bulbs go off in anybody's head? Okay, good, good. So Judah has this idea. He says, why don't we sell Joseph? Judas had that same idea, didn't he? I'd like to point out, Judas got a little bit more money out of the deal. I don't know if it was inflation or what. Um, but either way, we still have this idea of Jesus being sold for a handful of coins. Right? Because 20 shekels, 30 shekels, no matter which time period, that's not a lot. That's like a month's wages. Is that really enough to sell out your brother, to sell out the king of the universe? I don't think so. We read this in verse 29. It says, When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't here. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal had devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned his son for many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. 
Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph into Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So Reuben goes back. He finds the cistern. He finds the tomb, right? He finds it empty because his brothers had stolen him out of there. Likewise, when the disciples came to the tomb of Jesus, they found it empty. Now, hopefully you're seeing these fingerprints all over the story, right? We talked about the dream and the sun of the moon. But hopefully, when I, like when I talked about applying those fingerprints and making them line up, hopefully you're noticing that there's a bunch of key details that maybe don't quite fit perfectly. Like the 12 brothers and the 12 stars and the 12 disciples. Here in Genesis, we have one brother who is faithful and the rest who are unfaithful. Whereas in the New Testament, it's the exact opposite, isn't it? Judas is unfaithful while the rest of them were faithful. And so our last little tool, excuse me, when we're talking about these fingerprints, I want to introduce you to all is the idea of the anti-type, right? Remember we talked about types, somebody being a type of Jesus, like a typewriter, and it takes that letter and flaps it on the paper, and we have this imperfect copy of the original. Well, an anti-type would be like if you took that letter on the typewriter and you flipped it upside down, and then you flapped it. It's my favorite word, flap. It's an imperfect copy, but it's exactly opposite in every single way to prove a point. So in the New Testament, only one disciple sold out Jesus for silver. Whereas here in Genesis, we have only one disciple who refused. All the rest, or excuse me, one brother who refused. All the rest sold Joseph out. In the New Testament, it's the women, right? They're the ones who discover Jesus' empty tomb. Particularly, uh, Jesus' mother Mary was there. The women, the mother of Jesus, finds the tomb empty and then takes that news and tells the disciples. Whereas here in Genesis, it's the exact opposite. The brother finds the tomb empty and takes that information back to Joseph's parents. Again, it's opposite in every single way. When they brought back the clothes that Joseph was wearing, they dipped them in blood, right? I would imagine, it doesn't say in the Bible, but I would imagine that, the, that they, they kind of ratted it up a little bit to make it look like a wild animal. There's these ratty, bloody clothes that they brought back to father and said, look, here, your son is dead. Whereas the robe we receive from Christ, when it's covered in his blood, comes out perfect and spotless. And it's not a sign that we're dead, it's a sign that we're alive. And so we have this beautiful picture of how God can take something that's evil and upside down and backwards and just completely off, and he can flip it and turn it around and use it for good. Right? Because what happened to Joseph later on? He goes into Egypt, he gets involved in the Pharaoh's court, then the famine comes, and eventually Joseph ends up being the savior of his family. So God took this evil thing, this backwards thing, and he turned it for good. 
We read in, in chapter 50, all the way toward the end of Genesis, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Isn't that kind of what God does with us? We're backwards. We're upside down. We're broken. Our hearts are full of sin and evil. But God doesn't let that stop him, does he? He takes those backwards things and he turns them right again to use them for his good. The scripture I read this morning, Romans 8.28, God works for the good of all people who love him. No matter what bad thing you've had happen in your life, no matter what trauma you've gone through, no matter what it is, God can take those upside down backwards things and make them right again. And I don't know exactly what's going on in everyone's life here, but I can pretty well guarantee that there's some part of you in your heart that's an anti-type, that's upside down and backwards. Don't think that God can't use you. Peter and Andrew, for, for lack of a better term, they were dumb fishermen. They were uneducated, working class folks. They weren't scribes. They weren't scholars. They didn't have a college education. But God used them to spread his message. Simon, not Simon Peter, but the other Simon, Simon the Zealot. A zealot is somebody who is a political revolutionary. Somebody whose whole life revolves around violence and overthrowing Rome. But Jesus took him and turned his heart around and used him to spread the gospel. Paul persecuted the church when he was Saul. Saul persecuted the church, right? Matthew was a tax collector. He was somebody who sold out his own people for his own financial gain. And God still used them. So maybe if you're sitting here today and you're thinking to yourself, I can't be of any use in God's kingdom. I don't have anything to offer. I'm not the one who God needs. Maybe that's what you're thinking. I don't have anything to offer. Well, you're only, you're only half right. Because we don't have anything to offer, do we? In the grand scheme of things, we don't have anything to give God that he doesn't already have. But God still uses us. That's the point. God's not known for recruiting good people. God is famous for taking the B team, right? The backup quarterback, the one who has nothing to offer, the one who the world would say is useless. God's famous for taking that person and using him or her to perform miracles because he is good. So God uses Joseph's tragedy and his brother's evil to save the sons of Israel from the famine. And so as you go on throughout your week, I want you to think about the backwards, broken parts of you. The parts that are an anti-type. The parts that maybe you're ashamed of. The parts that are keeping you from becoming like Christ. 
And I want you to spend some time in prayer this week with God. I want you to ask him to turn your heart around, to flip it right side up, to turn your sin the other direction. So that he can use you in his kingdom. Because what Satan intends for evil, God can turn around and use for good. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are immensely grateful for the fact that you take us broken, shattered people, us upside down and backwards people, and you turn us around and you use us for your good. We're thankful that you have the power, you have the majesty that you can take the B team and use them for the glory of your name. So Father, I just ask you that you would take us, you would take us broken people and you would let us be your hands and feet. I ask that you would send us out into the world knowing that we are imperfect, knowing that we are broken and help us to rely on you and to rely on your strength and your grace and your spirit. I thank you for this church. I thank you for your word. And I just ask that you would fill our hearts with what we need to go out and fulfill your will. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. And the church said, all right. So at this time, I want to sing a song of invitation.